Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Joe Fami, Portfolio Manager at Zor Capital, a New York-based investment management firm. You might recognize Joe from his appearances on CNBC, Fox Business, and Yahoo Finance. I've known Joe for many, many years, and he's made some bold calls that are worth paying attention to. In this conversation, we get Joe's 2023 market outlook, why he thinks the biotech sector is poised to outperform the S&P. We also talk about the macro, the big picture there, but there's no need to obsess over the macro, according to Joe. We also reflect back on 2022 and that challenging environment and some of the lessons gleaned then. We also talk about why the phrase don't fight the Fed has resonated with Joe and his trading and investment style in recent years. I really enjoyed this conversation with Joe. I learned a lot and I think you will too. Joe Fami, Portfolio Manager at Zor Capital. It is so great to welcome you to the show and great to see you again. Welcome, Joe. Thank you for having me, Julie. I look forward to our conversation. Me too. And we were just doing Twitter spaces around the holidays and talking about the markets, market outlook. And for the folks who are watching and listening, Joe, they would love to probably hear from you. Like, what is kind of your take on the markets? We're a couple of weeks into 2023 at this point. What's your take right now? I think a lot of this relies on the Fed. I think it's important. Uh, you don't have to be a big macro expert, but it is important. I've been doing this about 25 years, and I really didn't realize the importance of the phrase that came from Marty Zweig, don't fight the Fed. I didn't really realize it until the past five years. Um, just to give an example, let's go back over the past couple of, couple of years as, as to what's happened. We had the pandemic. And the Fed did everything that they could uh, to prevent the world from coming to an end. We understand it's a once in a century pandemic. So they started buying bonds. They did more bond buying in the six weeks following the pandemic than in the nine years combined from 2009 uh, to 2018. More treasury buying in just those six weeks increased their balance sheet and kept rates at zero. So that's where a lot of people were saying, well, fundamentally things are ugly and things are bad, but that's where don't fight the Fed works both ways, where they were providing a lot of accommodation. It was a very accommodative environment. Then come to the end of December 2021 into January 2022, those three things got taken away where they said, we're going to stop our bond buying. We're going to start raising rates. We're going to reduce our balance sheet. So that's where you don't want to fight the Fed because now instead of an accommodative environment, the majority of 2022 was a restrictive environment where they were taking liquidity out of the system. So fast forward to today, I think it's very important to pay attention to what the Fed's doing because that does affect liquidity, affects leverage, affects the markets. Um, and I think they are closer to the end of this rate hiking cycle and we can start to see at least some stability and maybe a new uptrend in the market uh, later this year. Yeah, as you're pointing out, don't fight the Fed, um, meaning like you want your trading or your investment strategies to be more aligned with like their policies. I suppose is that what you're, I've always heard the phrase, but I've actually never heard someone like explain it to me, like why or well, like how, how do you do where, it? Uh, it's that's what's so funny is I've for 20 years you hear don't fight the Fed, don't exactly. fight the Fed. Exactly. I've heard for probably a really decade. know what it means. That's yeah. what I mean. It didn't really resonate until if they're providing liquidity, if they're keeping interest rates low, if it's an accommodative background or macro backdrop, you know, you don't want to fight it and short it and be fighting stocks. That's where buy the dip and a lot of V bottoms over the past several years came from. 
Uh, but when they're taking that away because inflation became a problem last year, and when they're taking that away and making it restrictive by raising rates, so lending becomes more difficult, housing becomes more difficult, credit card rates, everything, interest rates being higher is, can be restrictive. Um, that That's where you don't want to fight the Fed, where a lot of people were saying, you know, in 2022, just buying the dip and buying the dip. But that's where you have to take a step mm -hmm. back. The best traders and investors I've I've studied, they all understand the big picture. So that's why it's important. Whether you're a trader or investor, you don't need to again be a macro expert. But it's important to follow what the Fed is doing and their and their accommodative or restrictive policies. That's a good point. Like you, as you point out, you don't have to be a macro expert, but you do need to be paying attention. And you know, I've um, gosh, I've been covering, I've been kind of in the business from a journalistic standpoint for. 11, 12 years at this point. And I remember like going to conferences and there would be, you know, certain investors, they get asked about the economy or whatnot. And they would say, yeah, I don't really, I, I don't care about the macro. I care about like basically their stock picking and, and those kinds of um, approaches. Do you think to follow on to your point, does the macro matter now more than ever? Or is it just, you know, all investors, all traders, they do need to just take the macro into consideration is this more of like a newer thing or am i completely off here that it kind of feels like more people are paying attention to the macro than yeah. i previously remember no that's a good point a lot of people are talking about it and some people have said yeah this is great i'm a trader how is this going to make me money what i do is i take a the big picture view to to understand how it's going to make you money is in a difficult environment uh, when we're in a bear or corrective market, four out of five stocks will move with the general direction of the market. So how it can help you is in a difficult market, it's more of protecting your capital and saving you money where it's not really going to help you make money, but it can protect you from uh, losing money by using smaller positions, maybe being a little bit more defensive, whether that involves shorting, cash, lighter positions, but that's how it can help you. And in an accommodative environment, where you know the Fed has your back, that's where you can help you help you to make money. But I totally get it. I think it's just important not to obsess over it, not to overthink things because there are so many variables in macro and everyone loves talking about it. And I'm like, okay, how are you going to understand currencies, commodities, you know, the dollar and how all this blends into 190 countries worldwide? Like, no one, you know, it's just fun to talk about. But at the end of the day, just know the big picture take a step back and use it for maybe for investment levels, uh, depending on the backdrop of the uh, environment. You know, one of the things I love about talking to you, Jonah, to be, I don't even know if we've ever done an interview maybe and on Yahoo Finance probably got a question, but you and I have never actually done like a one-on-one -on -one interview. We did do a Twitter spaces, but this is our first time one-on-one. -on -one. And I will say this about you. You are so good at explaining things and helping educate and you're good at teaching folks. I've noticed that on your Twitter spaces. I know you do a lot of webinars. Um, so this is really helpful uh, for the folks at home. Let's uh, continue to kind of focus on your outlook. Like, are you bullish? Are you bearish? Like, where are you right now in 2023 or anything that's kind of shifted for you of late? Yeah, and, and thank you for those kind words. Uh, I'm a stock trader. I'm a growth manager. I My real area of expertise or my passion is finding individual companies. So I'm a big fan of finding some of those big winners. Um, you know, it's sort of a William O'Neill Investors Business Daily style, but eventually what that style is, is growth. I'm looking for stocks that 
are, are companies that are going through very, very strong growth periods. So uh, William O'Neill did studies of the greatest winners throughout history of the past 80 years. And I'm talking about before McDonald's went on to become a huge winner, Home Depot and Walmart and Microsoft. And the list is endless of studying these stocks before they went on to 1,000, 2,000 or, or bigger percent gains. And what they had in common was huge acceleration and huge increases in earnings and sales growth. So that's what I'm looking for coming out of this bear market, eventually coming out of this correction, whatever you want to call it. I'm looking for... Uh, companies that are growing their earnings and sales that have uh, the potential to appreciate rapidly in price. Can you give us some names or some areas <laughs> that are interesting sectors, at least? Like what... uh, some areas right now that are interesting, for sure. I've talked about is biotech and medical products as uh, more people are aging, uh, as uh, there's more population, older population and so forth. Um, I don't have any like specific stocks off offhand, but uh, but that's like an investment theme products. for you, yeah. What's that? That's like one of the investment themes for you. You're just mentioning the aging. Yeah, population. I love biotech because uh, when the market was making more and more lows throughout 2022, uh, you know, a, a way to play it, because a lot of people don't like single stock risk. So XBI, IBB are two of the main biotech ETFs. So you get a broad spe spectrum, a broad basket of stocks. When the market was making lows, they were just holding up and doing very, very well. So I like it because of relative strength, meaning relative to the market, it was showing great strength. Another reason is that big pharma, your Merck's, Pfizer's, AstraZeneca, Novartis, these companies have pristine balance sheet, tons of cash flow, tons of cash, and they're looking to grow their pipeline of drugs. So in a difficult year, last year, I think we saw 15 or 20 uh, buyouts in a and a lot of M&A in a difficult year. And the average buyout was like 120%, meaning that big pharma is seeing opportunity in a lot of small and mid caps that have the potential once they get through their phase trials and get towards FDA approval, there's potential for those companies and those stocks to add to their pipeline. And also a lot of trials were put off, uh, were put on hold during COVID. So now you're starting to see more data and more trials come in. So I like the sector. I think it's acting well. I still think energy is going to do well. Um, I think high, high oil prices are here to stay for a little bit. So those are some of the themes and the sectors for now early in 2023 that are showing great mm -hmm. strength. So biotech, you mentioned energy, which was like the trade of 2022. Uh, I suppose those folks um, are happy with their investments. And it still sounds like it still has some legs here. Um, talk to me about the energy thesis. Um, and and I suppose, you, as you mentioned, you expect the higher prices to remain. Um, let's kind of tease that out, out a bit, um, that you still see some room for the energy trade. Yeah, I think a lot of analysts have still have their models based on lower priced oil. Uh, it reminds me of, you know, 07, 06, 07, 08, a lot of oil stocks did very well. And they went on to become big winners because the analysts had priced in 40 or $50 oil. And then oil eventually went, I think, close to 150. So they had to raise their estimates. I'm not saying that that's going to happen. I just think that a lot of uh, analysts still have their models based on lower priced oil. But uh, as the price stabilizes and stabilizes at a higher price, I think you're going to still see a lot of companies. There's been a lot of consolidation. Uh, you're going to see a lot of companies with just very, very strong cash flow 
I'm not a macro expert or oil expert as far as all the production and onshore and offshore stuff, but I've just noticed from my technical work, a lot of those stocks are still acting very well. So um, when we were kind of talking a bit about your background, you kind of mentioned um, you're an investment manager, you're a trader, but you are a stock picker. Like that's kind of your sweet spot, what I was hearing earlier. Um, when we were doing our Twitter spaces, we had George Noble on, of course, um, if folks are familiar with him, he was um, with Peter Lynch uh, at Fidelity, very well-known uh, stock picker. And I've had a lot of conversations on this podcast, and I'd love to kind of um, hear your thoughts since, um, you know, you're talking about picking stocks. You know, in the call the last decade or so, uh, a lot of it's been, you know, by the index and you have the basically the Fed, the Fed policies that voted well for that kind of strategy. Do you think we're going to be in a, entering an environment where we get back to kind of like the the stock pickers uh, market? What are your thoughts? That's a great question. I, I, I think people have to be open minded. You know, when somebody says, what's your you know, outlook for the markets, just maybe because if the Fed uh, pauses their current rate hiking cycle, it doesn't mean the market goes back to new highs. You have to be open-minded to a range. And I think it's always a stock picker's market, but if let's say the market consolidates in a range for a little while and digests the big moves over the past, you know, uh, several years, more than ever, it'll be a, a stock picker's market uh, where, uh, uh, for people who are looking to outperform, one way to do that is to pick better stocks or better asset classes than the overall market. So uh, it involves stock picking, it involves concentration, it involves trading them effectively. Uh, but I do think it's it's going to be um, a more than ever a stock picker's market this year. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you're just kind of mentioning like it's always like you mentioned it's always a stock picker's market, which um, I, I like that too. Um, I want to brag about you a little bit, Joe. Um, so sorry if I'm putting you on the spot, but you know, we've known each other for a long time. And um, I used to work at Yahoo Finance for the folks watching and listening. And you are a frequent guest on there, contributor. And um, I think, you know, even, okay, so I want to say it was 2016, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it was, I think, at the SALT conference, you made the call. I think the Dow at the time was at 17,500. Um, you made a call for Dow 20,000 by the end of 2016. You nailed that call. Um, more recently, um, during in 2020, when everyone was like freaked out about the market, um, it was late March, early April when you kind of start to get, you started to say, um, and I, I want to maybe I'll paraphrase here, but you're talking about how the coronavirus was going to get worse, but that doesn't mean the market has to get worse. Like you started to get, I guess, a bit more upbeat on the market. Um, so just putting those out there for folks, I guess, as we kind of look ahead, like, do you have any calls for the market or anything that that you're you're willing to put out there right now or that you're thinking about of like where we might be headed? Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, thank you for that. And uh, it's I like I love how you do your your research. So thank you. Um, nothing major. I mean, one of my calls is I think XBI, the biotech index, will outperform the S and P in 2023. That's one call uh, that I've made. Um, uh, as far as for me, uh, making the calls is great. And a lot of people say, well, what is it that I've been lucky to, I think the key is to be consistent. 
and then when I'm I'm wrong a lot too, but also the phrase "it's okay to be wrong, just don't stay wrong." But uh, a lot of the calls come from analyzing the technicals. I screen the market every night and look at between 500 to 1,000 stocks every single night, um, partially because I'm very passionate about this, partially because I'm a loser, and that's what I no, like you're to not. do. But <laughs> I go through the screens because that's what's going to really give me a true feel for the markets. You wake up in the morning, there's 20 bloggers, five are bullish, five are bearish, Five say buy gold, five say hide under your bed, your head spinning with opinions. Now you have a million social media, not a million, but you have a lot more social media sites, you have a lot more financial uh, websites, television, all that. Your head could be spinning with all the different opinions. So I like the phrase, don't focus on what you think the market should be doing, focus on what it's actually doing. And my best way of doing that is to look at the stocks, shut out the noise. Notice how noise and news kind of sound the same. <laughs> shut that all out and look at what the market's doing by going through stocks, seeing if there's strong technicals, seeing uh, what type of sectors are acting well. Because let's not forget, the big institutions control the markets, period, end of sentence. So it would be important if you could learn some technical analysis again you don't have to be a macro expert you don't have to be a technical expert just basic technical skills to see are the institutions consistently buying stock or are the institutions consistently selling stock because the big mutual funds pension funds hedge funds they're not buying you know 500 a thousand 20 shares 10,000 shares they're buying hundreds of thousands if not millions of shares and as i like to say they can't hide their hand so to speak it shows up on the tape. So you need to be able to find out if they're consistently coming in or going out. And by, I remember around that coronavirus bottom, I wrote that just because the, the coronavirus, the numbers and all the stats will get worse, it doesn't mean the market has to get worse. And people, besides getting ridiculed, which is fine, I don't care about that, but people were saying, you know, what are you seeing? I was actually seeing a lot of money being put to work by those institutions, a lot of technicals were improving. And to me, that's more important than anyone's opinion, including my own. That's fascinating. So the, like you're talking about like the institutions basically run it. They're the biggest buyers. Um, can like an, any, like, can any person like look this up or see like how this works? Like, I, I mean, I'm definitely not an expert by any means, but like, how do you, how do you do that? A couple of things is paying attention to the, just the volume on the day. It's a very mm -hmm. simple, our uh, is the day up on a big volume day? Are we down on a big volume day? Meaning compare the volume to the previous day to show signs of institutional accumulation uh, around market bottoms. In fact, real time over the past couple of weeks since like December 26th of 2022, let's say over the past couple of weeks of this taping, the markets, the up days are coming on strong volume and the down days are coming on light volume, showing that there's subtle institutional accumulation beneath the surface. Some people might say, why is this happening? The why doesn't matter to me. It could be because the market's a discounting mechanism and is starting to forecast lower rates in the end of the rate hiking cycle. But to me, the why isn't as important as just noticing that it's happening. No different than uh, December of 2021, there was a lot of huge institutional selling where we were having down days on big, big volume, and it wasn't over one day. For example, if an institution wants to buy 
3 million shares of something, they don't just buy it that day as a market order. They do it over several weeks, just like if they're looking to sell, they're doing it over several weeks. So you have to pay attention. Are they consistently selling, which is what they were doing at the end of December into early January of 2022. And that was showing signs of the institutions getting out. And then it led into this bear market. Now it's still early, but we're seeing some consistent signs of that buying. So just simple price mm -hmm. and volume is a way to pay attention to what they're consistently doing. Interesting. Like um, you're talking about, like you're starting to see signs of that consistent buying. Do you think like, Okay, it felt like I want I want to hear from you. Like it felt like back in December, like everyone was bearish. Like it was like pretty bleak on the outlook. Everyone was like bearish. Do you are there some sort of like optimistic views now? Or I don't want to say like outright bullish by any means, but do you think there's like a shift in the sentiment? Yeah, sentiment is part of my work. That's secondary to the price action of stocks. So I'd say 90% of what I use to judge the health of the market is the price action of stocks, uh, especially growth stocks, because that shows a risk on versus being in defensive names. But sentiment is also important because uh, the market tends to fool the majority. So when everyone's very negative, the market has a convenient way of surprising people and uh, and always same vice versa on the positive side. But uh, you know, another example is coming into this year, I was thinking, we would have another leg down or at least another maybe five or 10% down. We still could, but the point is that you have to be very flexible because I started to notice uh, a lot of people were calling for S&P 3000. Of course, it could still happen. Anything could happen, but I was noticing a lot more consistent bearish sentiment and very, very negative, which is easy to fall into based on recency bias. If you've been punched in the face for the past year in the markets, and really if you've been in growth stocks, it topped out February of 2021. So it's been almost two years of growth stocks just getting sold into strength, down 50 to 90% off of their highs. When that consistently happens and wears on you, it's very easy to get affected by recency bias and think we're never going to have another bull market. But uh, and then to your point, especially when everyone's getting all negative, uh, that could be, you know, the market can potentially bottom when 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 we least expect it. And when uh, the market starts to price in better news six to nine months from now. Mm, that's a good point. This is I feel like in this conversation, I'm already learning things, too, of like the importance to being nimble. I think that's probably a good lesson um, for traders. Um as you look back on 2022, because 2022 was it was a challenging year for pretty much everyone. Um, I, a lot of folks who came on this show, especially like talked about 2022 being a challenging year. Do you have any lessons that stand out for you um, from 2022? I'd say the biggest one is patience. Um I definitely, I mean, I went on TV, wrote about how the market was time to, I didn't expect a big bear market. I thought it was going to correct um, in the beginning of the year. And is the, the difference between analyzing things and executing things where I kept saying to myself, all right, it's pretty ugly here. It's pretty ugly here. But then you feel sometimes a need to do something, or maybe there's a bargain here, or maybe there's an opportunity. So I'd say the two biggest lessons is in a corrective market, you have to be patient. You have to be disciplined because in a forgiving market, when it's just straight up and buy the dip and buy the dip, uh, if you it, it forgives your mistakes. 
meaning if you don't buy properly, if you don't have a loss cutting discipline, if you don't do certain things, the market just forgives it and just goes higher. But in a corrective market, it punishes you for those mistakes. So you have to be very patient uh, and very disciplined. The other thing that comes to mind is smaller positions, because as I said, four out of five stocks move with the general direction of the market. So when we're in an ugly downtrend, it's okay to get involved, whether you're a trader or investor, but I would say smaller position sizes uh, at least helped me survive last year because you still get hit. You just don't get hit as bad. And with increasing volatility, you don't get chopped around in the markets. Yeah. 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 Those are, those are good uh, lessons as well. Especially as you mentioned, like the, the smaller position sizing and also like the ability to be able to learn from your mistakes too, versus like, or when you're in an environment that kind of hides the mistakes too, I probably, probably lets you pay attention a bit more. And as you're also mentioning the importance of patience, those are um, all good takeaways. Um, yeah, real quick, you mentioned yeah. flexibility. I wanted to touch on that because Let's that's also it, yeah. another thing. It's really important to just not have an ego when it comes to the markets. Um, it's okay to form your opinion, but then let the market prove you right or wrong. And I know you've interviewed some great people and Paul Tudor Jones called you what the nicest person on Wall Street. Is that correct? <laughs> Yeah, well, it's a heck of a compliment, but it's even more impressive that you got an interview with him because that's one of the hardest interviews to get. But he talks about you either evolve, adapt or die. I'm paraphrasing him, but adapting is the key word there where you have to adapt to what the market gives you. Um, you've interviewed a lot of greats. I know Stanley Druckenmiller, I'm paraphrasing his quote, which is one of his greatest assets over the past 30 years is his ability to change his mind. Um, David Tepper, I can't think of anything more flexible than being short financials in 08, 09 during the global financial crisis and literally going 180 and taking monster positions in some of the banks. I know he was involved with credit as well, but that's just incredible open-mindedness, no ego, flexibility, ability to adapt. I'm a big fan of studying success because success mm -hmm. leaves clues. And when you study a lot of those amazing traders and investors, one common theme is humility, the ability to adapt and the ability to change your mind. Joe, you have a lot of great one-liners, a very very quotable um, interview, but yeah, I've never interviewed Druckenmiller or Tepper, but they're definitely on like the list of like, you know, kind of yeah, like dream interviews. I'll tell, yeah, I'll give him yeah. a call and text him for it. Um, I've been <laughs> asking Stanley Druckenmiller for an interview since 2013. So maybe this will be the year. decade. Right, so. a, it's been a decade of consistent asking. So we shall see. Um, always welcome on the show. Okay, so you're talking about studying success. Uh, I, and um, gosh, earlier in the conversation, you were talking about, um, I think it was O'Neill. Was it William O'Neill? Is that who I heard? Yeah, William O'Neill. Yes. He's the okay. founder of Investors Business Daily. Yeah, yeah. so um, maybe, I, I don't know if there's anything that you've read or studied over the years that like stays with you or has really resonated with you. Um, is there any like literature or books um, that have had an impact on you and your career that you would recommend for the folks out there? Um, there's some great books as far as when you mentioned William O'Neill, How to Make Money in Stocks, fourth edition. It's an orange cover. If you want to learn technicals, the, the greatest lesson, honestly, for $15 or whatever the paperback costs is to study the first hundred pages of that book because it marks up a lot of charts. And as they say, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it tends to rhyme. It's a great way to study history so you can see the types of moves stocks can make and the types of corrective action they can have too. So that's a great book. Reminiscences of a Stock Operator is always mentioned as well. Uh, to be honest, I think a lot of, I hate to use the word self-help, but 
a lot of books, like I think Think and Grow Rich is the greatest trading book out there and it has nothing to do with trading. So it has everything to do with trading, but it's technically not about trading. I mm -hmm. think 80% of anything in life is psychology. And how it applies to trading is you could have the greatest philosophy, the greatest strategy, stocks handed to you on a silver platter. But if your mind's not right, you're going to screw it up. So I'm a big fan of Think and Grow Rich and uh, Tony Robbins and David Goggins and uh, Norman Vincent Peale, a lot of people who are very inspirational and who always talk about keeping your mind strong because uh, I'll give you a quick example. 2017 was literally a year you could just sit back in your rocking chair. It was X equals Y on the chart. Straight up, the market was up, I don't know, 20 something percent. And it was uh, a year where we didn't have more than a 3% correction in the S&P 500. It was just straight up. It hadn't yeah. happened since 1995. It's very rare to get a market that doesn't correct more than 3% because the market, the average intra-year corrections about 14.5% over the past, I don't know, 70 years. So to have a really, really smooth year where it went up 20%, you think it's pretty easy to make money. A friend of mine was down that year. He was down 35%. And why is because he was going through a brutal divorce and his head wasn't straight and he wanted to revenge trade and he kept shorting the market and he kept being all frustrated. I said, your mind's not straight. You got to take off from trading. You got to, you know, just get away from the markets. But that's just an example of your mind has to be strong and you have to do everything in your power to keep your mind sharp if you want to achieve consistent success in the markets. Yeah, the psychology part of it. Uh, that That's another theme that has come up on this podcast too, like the psychology that goes along with this. You mentioned some great books. I'm looking at my bookshelf. I have Reminiscence of a Stock Operator on the bookshelf. It is a great book. Um, so just as we look again toward this year, is there anything that you're paying attention to or anything that's kind of like on your radar, even big events? Like what are you kind of focused on um, this year? Maybe even in the this quarter even so we don't have to look out a full year um i'm waiting for verbal confirmation from the fed that they're pausing this cycle we were basically at zero we're at four and a half roughly now fed funds rate so we've raised 450 basis points they started march of 2022 so in under a year they've you know and then they're expected to get to about about five percent is their terminal rate depending on the data and so forth so for me I'm waiting for that verbal confirmation that not all is clear, but at least that tension's being taken off of the market. The market might have already priced that in, where they're expecting another quarter, another quarter, get to 5% roughly, and then stop. But uh, that verbal confirmation where we had a correction in 2010, in the summer of 2020, uh, 2010, we had the flash crash. Ben Bernanke was the Fed chair at the time. It wasn't until he verbally said September 1st, 2010. I don't even remember what I had for dinner last night, but I remember random dates <laughs> in the markets. Uh, he came out and announced QE2 at the Jackson Hole Symposium, September 1st, 2010. And the market, the institutions came in very, very strong, huge volume, and the market took off from there. The market was correcting in the fall of 2018. And it wasn't until the current Fed Chair Powell on January 4th of, of 2019 said, we're going to be patient with raising rates. Again, another verbal confirmation. And then, of course, I already discussed all the insane accommodation that they provided end of March, early April of 2020 after the pandemic. But these are all verbal confirmations from the Fed that 
not the coast is clear, but at least we're going to take that pressure off of the markets. And so that's something that I'm expecting to happen in March of this year. The Fed meets roughly every six weeks. So their next meeting is early February and then mid-March of 2023. I'm expecting another quarter, another quarter, and then they'll say, okay, let's let this 500 basis points of, of rate hikes, let's let it absorb, let's let it settle into the system. And when they pause, I think we're going to see some, uh, uh, not fireworks, but nice stability in the markets, I think. So you think, well, they'll, do you think they'll pause like at this, at, when, when do you think we'll see the pause? Two more meetings. Uh, Two more meetings. I think they're okay. at four and a half. They'll do a quarter. And in my guess, a quarter. Is that May? Is the May meeting? Uh, there's a, I think two more meetings. I'm guessing March. March. Quarter, oh, March. Oh my gosh. Wait, I'm so far. Yeah, I'm so far. Yeah, behind. yeah March. Quarter in early yeah. February. I think it's February 1st or 2nd is the next meeting. And then mid-March, every six weeks, that's the next meeting, another quarter. My guess is they'll pause there. And then this is also random. It's not the most large. It's not the largest sample size, but the last three bear markets all bottomed in March, uh, March mm. of 03, March of 09, and March of 2020. So maybe something has to do with March. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? I like the financial history. How much like does the economic picture matter for you? Like, do you, do you think about like the prospects of a recession? Does it matter to you? Um, or, you know, in, even inflation, like what, how much does that matter to like what you do? You know, it's it's I'm answering this question combined with something else from before where mm -hmm. someone like William O'Neill, he's always an optimist. He's always very positive about things. I think one of his quotes or someone else's quotes is I've never met a wealthy pessimist. So I, as far as the economy, I don't really I, I think things are still fairly strong. I know there's a lot of people struggling and and recession. It's just it's just very, very strange. I travel now in Boston, in New York, in Miami, Vegas, LA, all these major cities, airports are busy, hotels are busy. I still think the economy's strong and I'm also just an optimist. I don't like to overthink whether we go into a recession or not. I don't mean to dismiss it. I don't know if you know some parts of the economy have been in a recession. So it's really hard to, uh, again, as a trader, I, I now I'm falling into the trap of talking too much macro, but no, talk, I don't wanna do overthink <laughs> the macro or the recession. I'd like to think that the optimistic side of me is there's always newer entrepreneurial companies that are in their early growth stages. An example on the March of 09 bottom coming out of the global financial and housing crisis is Green Mountain Coffee and Netflix were two of the first stocks to go to new highs. And they went on to 1,000, 2,000 or larger percent returns because they were in their early growth stages um, where Netflix was at five or 10 million subscribers before they were on their way to over 200 million subscribers. Green Mountain Coffee that makes the Keurig, they were in less than 1% of households on their way to getting closer to 10% of households. So these those are examples of companies that were held back because of a bear market correction that were in their early growth stages that once we came out of the correction went on to huge gains and I'm optimistic. I don't have any names right now, but I'm optimistic when we eventually come out of this. There's always newer entrepreneurial companies that'll revolutionize our lives or a new trend or a new casual restaurant. Some of those stocks, you know, Taco Bell, Panera, Panera Bread, before they got bought out or went private, those went on to monster gains. There's That's what I love about this. You can almost, I don't want to like nerd out with all the passion about it, but there's always great... Um, 
companies that I'm looking forward to to uh, that are still in their early growth stages. I love it. It's a nice, healthy dose of optimism too. And we certainly um, could use that. And I, I, that's what I like about the show too. There, I have like a diversity of opinions and guests and I love that. And I love the different viewpoints because I think we all learn from each other, whether um, you're more bearish or more bullish or um, you know, just more of like an, a longer term, like optimist as well. Well, Joe, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I want to give you a few minutes Um to you know, share any closing thoughts you might have. Let folks know where they can learn more about you, your firm, or um, I don't know if there's anything you want to plug. Like if I don't know about if you want to plug webinars, social media. Just take take a few minutes, um, share some parting thoughts, and uh, let folks know where they can find you or learn more. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, you can find me on at Twitter at jfami and and go to jofami.com uh, as far as it's it's right behind me on the <laughs> uh as far as you can contact me through there. Uh I have two main businesses. I work with an RIA Zor Capital registered investment advisors where we manage uh separately manage accounts uh with this type of growth strategy. So if you're interested, you can always reach out. I also on the website uh, is actually during COVID, I realized a lot of people when I was putting out content, they like to trade on their own, or maybe they work for hedge funds where they can't allocate capital, but they still want my research and my market ideas. So I started an educational product, which you can also find at joefami.com. And the purpose of that is for people who do like to do it on their own is to help build their confidence, to help build their strengths as traders and investors. And my goal is to keep people on the right side of the market. And thank, thankfully, I've been, uh, knock on wood, I've been able to do that and provide them with some uh, education uh, to explain a lot of the concepts that I've we've, we've discussed briefly in this interview. And most importantly, besides keeping them on the right side of the market is teach them that discipline. You have to cut losses sometimes. Um, you, you know, you have to build your confidence as a trader, working on that strong mind and a lot of it is to just help people increase their probabilities of success because there's no right or wrong in the market. There's no black and white. There's a lot of gray area, but we want to try to make our decisions based on probabilities uh, and increase our probabilities of success. So you can find me at joefami.com whether you're interested in either product uh, and you can contact me there as well. Well, Joe Fami, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show and doing our first one-on-one -on -one interview together. So I thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your ideas. Joe Fami is a portfolio manager with Zor Capital. Joe, thank you again. Really appreciate you. Thank you. You got Paul Tudor Jones. Now you got me. So we're moving up and up in the world. There you go. <laughs> thank you again, Joe. Appreciate thank you. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe, and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.